This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read and recorded by Betsy Bush. Marquette, Michigan, November 2006. The Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. Chapter 1 The Scrap of Gray Paper. As a rule, Spargo left the watchman office at two o'clock. The paper had then gone to press. There was nothing for him, recently promoted to a sub-editorship, to do after he had passed the column for which he was responsible. As a matter of fact, he could have gone home before the machines began their clatter. But he generally hung about, trifling until two o'clock came. On this occasion, the morning of the 22nd of June, 1912, he stopped longer than usual, chatting with Hackett, who had charge of the foreign news, and who began telling him about a telegram which had just come through from Durazo. What Hackett had to tell was interesting. Spargo lingered to hear all about it, and to discuss it. Altogether, it was well beyond half-past two when he went out of the office, unconsciously puffing away from him as he reached the threshold, the last breath of the atmosphere in which he had spent his midnight. In Fleet Street the air was fresh, almost to sweetness, and the first gray of the coming dawn was breaking faintly around the high silence of St. Paul's. Spargo lived in Bloomsbury, on the west side of Russell Square. Every night and every morning he walked to and from the watchman office by the same route. Southampton Row, King's Way, The Strand, Fleet Street. He came to know several faces, especially amongst the police. He formed the habit of exchanging greetings with various officers whom he had encountered at regular points as he went slowly homewards, smoking his pipe. And on this morning, as he drew near to Middle Temple Lane, he saw a policeman whom he knew, one Driscoll, standing at the entrance, looking about him. Further away, another policeman appeared, sauntering. Driscoll raised an arm and signaled. Then, turning, he saw Spargo. He moved a step or two towards him. Spargo saw news in his face. "'What is it?' asked Spargo. Driscoll jerked a thumb over his shoulder, towards the partly open door of the lane. Within, Spargo saw a man hastily donning a waistcoat and jacket. "'He says,' answered Driscoll, "'him there, the porter, "'that there's a man lying in one of them entries down the lane, "'and he thinks he's dead. "'Likewise, he thinks he's murdered.' Spargo echoed the word. "'But what makes him think that?' he asked, "'peeping with curiosity beyond Driscoll's burly form. "'Why?' "'He says there's blood about him,' answered Driscoll. "'He turned and glanced at the oncoming constable, "'and then turned again to Spargo. "'You're a newspaper man, sir,' he suggested. "'I am,' replied Spargo. "'You'd better walk down with us,' said Driscoll with a grin. "'There'll be something to write pieces in the paper about. "'At least, there may be.' "'Spargo made no answer.' He continued to look down the lane, wondering what secret it held, until the other policeman came up. At the same moment, the porter, now fully clothed, came out. 
Come on, he said shortly. I'll show you. Driscoll murmured a word or two to the newly arrived constable, and then turned to the porter. How came you to find him, then? he asked. The porter jerked his head at the door which they were leaving. I heard that door slam, he replied irritably, as if the fact which he mentioned caused him offense. I know I did. So I got up to look around. Then, well, I saw that. He raised a hand, pointing down the lane. The three men followed his outstretched finger, and Spargo then saw a man's foot, booted, gray-socked, protruding from an entry on the left hand. "'Sticking out there, just as you see it now,' said the porter. "'I ain't touched it, and so—' He paused and made a grimace as if at the memory of some unpleasant thing. Driscoll nodded comprehendingly. "'And so you went along and looked?' he suggested. "'Just so, just to see who it belonged to, as it might be.' "'Just to see what there was to see,' agreed the porter. "'Then I saw there was blood, and then, well, I made up the lane to tell one of you chaps.' "'Best thing you could have done,' said Driscoll. "'Well, now then.' The little procession came to a halt at the entry. The entry was a cold and formal thing of itself, not a nice place to lie dead in, having glazed white tiles for its walls and concrete for its flooring. Something about its appearance in that grey morning air suggested to Spargo the idea of a mortuary. And that the man whose foot projected over the step was dead he had no doubt. The limpness of his pose certified to it. For a moment none of the four men moved or spoke. The two policemen unconsciously stuck their thumbs in their belts and made play with their fingers. The porter rubbed his chin thoughtfully. Spargo remembered afterwards the rasping sound of this action. He himself put his hands in his pockets and began to jingle his money and his keys. Each man had his own thoughts as he contemplated the piece of human wreckage which lay before him. "'You'll notice,' suddenly observed Driscoll, speaking in a hushed voice, "'you'll notice that he's lying there in a queer way, same as if, as if he'd been put there.' sort of propped up against that wall at first, and had slid down, like. Spargo was taking in all the details with a professional eye. He saw at his feet the body of an elderly man. The face was turned away from him, crushed in against the glaze of the wall. But he judged the man to be elderly because of gray hair and whitening whiskers. It was clothed in a good, well-made suit of gray check cloth, tweed, and the boots were good. So, too, was the linen cuff which projected from the sleeve that hung so limply. One leg was half-doubled under the body. The other was stretched straight out across the threshold. The trunk was twisted to the wall. Over the white glaze of the tiles against which it, and the shoulder towards which it had sunk, were crushed there, were gouts and stains of blood. And Driscoll, taking a hand out of his belt, pointed a finger at them. "'Seems to me,' he said slowly, "'seems to me as how he's been struck down from behind as he came out of here. "'That blood's from his nose, gushed out as he fell. "'What do you say, Jim?' "'The other policeman coughed. "'Better get the inspector here,' he said. "'And the doctor and the ambulance. "'Dead, ain't he?'
Driscoll bent down and put a thumb on the hand which lay on the pavement. "'As ever they make em, he remarked laconically. "'And stiff, too. "'Well, hurry up, Jim.' Spargo waited until the inspector arrived, waited until the hand ambulance came. More policemen came with it. They moved the body for transference to the mortuary, and Spargo then saw the dead man's face. He looked long and steadily at it while the police arranged the limbs, wondering all the time who it was that he gazed at. How he came to that end, what was the object of his murderer, and many other things. There was some professionalism in Spargo's curiosity, but there was also a natural dislike that a fellow being should have been so unceremoniously smitten out of the world. There was nothing very remarkable about the dead man's face. It was that of a man of apparently sixty to sixty-five years of age, plain, even homely of feature, clean-shaven except for a fringe of white whisker, trimmed after an old-fashioned pattern, between the ear and the point of the jaw. The only remarkable thing about it was that it was much lined and seamed. The wrinkles were many and deep around the corners of the lips and the angles of the eyes. This man, you would have said to yourself, has led a hard life, and weathered storm, mental as well as physical. Driscoll nudged Spargo with a turn of his elbow. He gave him a wink. "'Better come down to the dead house,' he muttered confidentially. "'Why?' asked Spargo. "'They'll go through him,' whispered Driscoll. "'Search him, do you see? "'Then you'll get to know all about him, and so on. "'Help to write that piece in the paper, eh?' Spargo hesitated. He had had a stiff night's work, and until this encounter with Driscoll he had cherished warm anticipation of the meal which would be laid out for him at his rooms, and of the bed into which he would subsequently tumble. Besides, a telephone message would send a man from the watchman to the mortuary— this sort of thing was not in his line now. Now. You'll be forgetting one of them big play cards out with something about a mystery on it, suggested Driscoll. You never know what lies at the bottom of those affairs. No more you don't. That last observation decided Spargo. Moreover, the old instinct for getting news began to assert itself. All right, he said. I'll go along with you and relighting his pipe, he followed the little cortege through the streets, still deserted and quiet, and as he walked behind he reflected on the unobtrusive fashion in which murder would stalk about. Here was the work of murder, no doubt, and it was being quietly carried along a principal London thoroughfare, without fuss or noise, by officials to whom the dealing with it was all a matter of routine. Surely... "'My opinion,' said a voice at Spargo's elbow, "'my opinion is that it was done elsewhere, not there. "'He was put there. That's what I say.' Spargo turned and saw that the porter was at his side. He, too, was accompanying the body. "'Oh,' said Spargo, "'you think?' "'I think he was struck down elsewhere and carried there,' said the porter. "'In somebody's chambers, maybe.' I've known of some queer games in our bit of London. Well, he never came in at my lodge last night, I'll stand to that. And who is he, I should like to know? From what I see of him, not the sort to be about our place. 
"'That's what we shall hear presently,' said Spargo. "'They're going to search him.' But Spargo was presently made aware that the searchers had found nothing. The police surgeon said that the dead man had, without doubt, been struck down from behind by a terrible blow, which had fractured the skull and caused death almost instantaneously. In Driscoll's opinion, the murder had been committed for the sake of plunder, for there was nothing whatever on the body. It was reasonable to suppose that a man who is well-dressed would possess a watch and chain, and have money in his pockets, and possibly rings on his fingers. But there was nothing valuable to be found. In fact, there was nothing at all to be found that could lead to identification. No letters, no papers, nothing. It was plain that whoever had struck the dead man down had subsequently stripped him of whatever was on him. The only clue to possible identity lay in the fact that a soft cap of grey cloth appeared to have been newly purchased at a fashionable shop in the West End. Spargo went home. There seemed to be nothing to stop for. He ate his food and he went to bed, only to do poor things in the way of sleeping. He was not the sort to be impressed by horrors, but he recognized at last that the morning's events had destroyed his chance of rest. He accordingly rose, took a cold bath, drank a cup of coffee, and went out. He was not sure of any particular idea when he strolled away from Bloomsbury, but it did not surprise him when, half an hour later, he found that he had walked down to the police station near which the unknown man's body lay in the mortuary and there he met Driscoll, just going off duty. Driscoll grinned at sight of him. "'You're in luck,' he said. "'Tisn't five minutes since they found a bit of grey writing paper crumpled up in the poor man's waistcoat pocket. It had slipped into a crack. Come in and you'll see it.' Spargo went into the inspector's office. In another minute he found himself staring at the scrap of paper. There was nothing on it but an address— scrawled in pencil. Ronald Breton, Barrister, King's Bench Walk, Temple, London. End of chapter 1